Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willis, Jimmy Hall, and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shows. My guests today are Jill Sternheimer and Alison Fensterstock. Jill Sternheimer is the Director of Public Programming at the Lincoln Center in New York City, where she's been programming two of the major summer festivals, Midsummer Night Swing and Lincoln Center Out of Doors. I met Jill when we collaborated on the Muscle Shoals show at the Lincoln Center three summers ago. Alison Fencerstock is a New Orleans-based music journalist and radio personality, and I met her a couple years ago through Chill. Both have an impeccable taste of music, and it was my pleasure to talk to the two of them about their work as well as our mutual love for music. Jill and Allison, thank you so much for being my guest today. Um, thanks for uh, for for your time and and uh, and being being willing to talk to me. And uh, it's always great to have you here in Nashville. Um, so I don't necessarily have to come to New York or New Orleans to to get to see you. Which, by the way, you know I love too. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I always kind of start in the beginning and not like where you're born, but kind of what is your earliest memory of, of music or how did you get sucked in the world of, of music? I think with with me, I, I remember so much just being a really little girl and sitting in the backseat of whatever car my parents had at the time, whether I remember my dad had an old beat up, rusted old Mustang convertible. Um, you know, I'm sure he got it because it was a cool convertible. And I, I remember we would listen to AM radio in the early 70s. And we all, my whole family, we sing to whatever music was on. So my, my mom and dad both loved Motown. My father loved the blues. My mother loved everything from Tom Jones to um, Tony Bennett to Sam Cooke. And we would all just, all the top 40 songs, our, our whole family, just, it was a, the joy. I remember so much that was the joy of my family. We, music really bonded us together. And that was our language. How about you, Alice? I don't know. I mean, I also have the, have the same memories of listening in the back of the car, just all the, and that this was like the top 40 of the early 80s. So this was a lot of like Springsteen and Madonna and Prince. Um, but I have one really specific memory, or two really. 
and I think it was 1987, I was 10, and the movies Dirty Dancing and La Bamba both came out, and this is very embarrassing, but I went to both movies and I became obsessed with 50s and 60s rock and roll. Like, I watched the opening credits of Dirty Dancing, it's in black and white and slow motion, and they're playing Be My Baby by Ronnie Spector, and that song just, like, like shot through my head <laughs> like an arrow, and I was like, I need to hear everything like this. So... And I feel it's not fair if we tell you how we heard, we fell in love with music. We want to know how did you fall in love with music? Well, you know, honestly, I don't quite know why it happened because my family's not very musical at all. I mean, here they love music, but it's like, as far as, you know, really knowing about music or really playing music, I didn't really have that much in my family. So the way it kind of happened, I don't know. What I know though is my uncle, he was a, like an, an insurance type of guy, but his company would always like sponsor the Montreux Jazz Festival and, and music related events. So he would take me there and he loved blues and jazz. And I think that had a lot to do with it. And then some of my friends started like playing the guitar and kind of getting into bands and I'm like this is kind of cool so I learned how to play the guitar which my first guitar teacher was like all oh, this really classically trained guy who's like who I could not connect with he I would learn these scales and stuff and I thought I'll learn how to play a song and I did not get to learn that and I like it almost ruined it for me for a while. I mean, he was very good at what he was doing. It just did not connect. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of was like, well, you know, I might be able to kind of learn a little bit by myself. Like a school teacher would give you little ukulele lessons and stuff like that. So I kind of still found my way in there. But uh, so learning how to play, learning how to play a little bit of the blues. I think that really kind of made me made me go down the rabbit hole. Um, but then that was just a casual experience and I think it can just kind of gradually grew from there. Now with you guys, how uh, how did that transition to you actually working in and around music? How How did that whole progression can well, go um i i started doing this this is kind of a, a fun funny uh, crazy little story when when i was 16 years old um there was a kid in my high school that worked for the rock and roll concert promoter and i think he played football so when the football season was coming around he realized he had to let go of the job i said i want that job i, I want that job he was the gopher the the runner for the big concert promoter. And this was in Ohio? It, this was in Cleveland. And I went in and, you know, they interviewed me. I don't think that they had ever had a young girl do this job before. They had always had guys doing it. Um, but they said, oh, do you have a car? I said, oh, yeah, I have a car. They said, well, do you know your way around downtown Cleveland? I said, oh, yeah, I know downtown Cleveland. Well, I did not have a car, and I had never driven in downtown Cleveland. I was from the suburbs. Um, but I had to have this job. And... Uh, you know, I came home and told my parents and they could see how, I mean, I was like 
I, there was no way anyone was going to tell me, no, I, I couldn't have this job. My dad used to come home early from work and he would give me his car. And I would, after school, I would go and be the runner and just go and do all the errands for the concert promoter. And he pulled me aside before my first day. He said, don't ever tell your mother that I'm telling you this, but the only way that you're going to learn to drive around in downtown Cleveland, you have to just get lost and then you'll find your way and you'll, <laughs> you'll have confidence. So, okay, great. <laughs> and that was kind of the greatest advice, you know? And um, so I did that and I they, they were so nice to me. This was um, a company called Belkin Productions and they were just the greatest people. They were so... I was just enamored of every single person that worked there. They were so cool. They were so professional and they did every, you know, just they brought the magic to town every week, you know, every week, every night of every week. It was somebody coming to Cleveland, whether it was, um, you know, The Clash or Ricky Lee Jones or The Who. I I got to do so many things as a 16-year-old girl that this was, I could not believe that, you know, it went from being on my wall and in my magazines and in my cassette player to this was my life. And I mean, it was really hard for me not to cut school every day to go and just hang out there. I just wanted to hear them talk on the phone and make deals. But they were just so they were such nice people. And I think they probably just got a kick out of me, too, because, <laughs> I mean, it was obvious that this was the greatest thing in my life. You know, whatever you need me, that's fine. You know, they would give me a bunch of posters and, you know, okay, just distribute these. Well, I took this job so seriously, I would have a staple gun and I would not come home until every telephone pole in downtown Cleveland was stapled with, with these posters. You know, I just I loved it. It was great. And I was off. <laughs> like was gro- Sorry. <laughs> growing up, did you always were you always aware of like the significance of Cleveland in early rock and roll and all that? Or is this something you learned later? I d- I really I didn't I wasn't really aware of it. I knew that I I don't I don't think I was totally aware of it. I think that was something that I kind of learned in hindsight. You know, I mean. I always I was told that it was cool. I was told that it was important, but it didn't really resonate, and I didn't feel it and understand it until later. I think, um, yeah. <laughs> oh, I was gonna ask if if there was anyone that um, you got starstruck by as a teenager backstage, or if you just were blasé uh, about it. Oh, I got starstruck by everybody, but I couldn't. I I had to be really cool, you know. I mean, and that that's. I'm still starstruck. I just, you know, when it's somebody... Well, I get starstruck, too. I don't know if this happens to you guys. I sometimes don't get starstruck as much by, like, you know, the you know, the leader of the band, I'll get starstruck by someone that I'm like, you wrote that song? I love that song. And, you know, and it might be somebody that could walk down the street and nobody would even realize that it was somebody, you know, or a producer. But they're the people, the behind-the-scenes people that really made things happen. That's sometimes who I'm even more starstruck by. But I, I love that feeling of being starstruck. Mm-hmm. It's a good feeling as long as I, you know, don't embarrass myself. <laughs> yeah, I have like an automatic like protective feature in my brain or something where I never get starstruck when I'm doing interviews with people because they always just seem normal and you're chatting. Um, but when I've worked on events like the Ponderosa Stomp, um, you know, I'll talk to artists before that or I'll interview them you know at events or I'll interview them for publications and it'll be fine 
and then I see them get on stage and I get extra starstruck. So I'm like, oh my God, I was just talking to that person. <laughs> and I suddenly realize who they are. But on the phone with like Bonnie Raitt or Elvis Costello or someone, you're just like, hey, you know, what was it like to write that song or whatever? It's, it's, you can put a distance there when you're just having a regular conversation, I think, about art. Yeah. I, I don't know if I've, I have much starstruck, but meeting certain meeting bb king and some of those guys was very instrumental in me just becoming a music person musician i think i mean it's just kind of they would never remember me but me just being in their presence for a few minutes i don't know it just and you you know mysticize it somewhat i'm sure but i don't know those are memories i still they're still kind of vivid which uh and now you know working with all those great guys up here and 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 in muscle shows it's it's kind of the same it's it's you know and it gets a little not weird but a little more complex when they become your friends but they still remain your idols and i mean i've heard you know stories of like meeting van morrison and he was like you know a complete you know, on on a human level, he would totally destroy that. Oh my gosh! Um, but but that has never really happened to me, thankfully, so far. I always felt these people could back it up on a personal level too. Right. Which uh, which I'm always kind of glad to find out. Yeah, I think most people have that I've met have all they've all been really nice and gracious and kind and which just makes me you know like like them even more, idolize them even more. Yeah, and you always hear those stories, like, you know, or the advice, like, never meet your idols. But yeah. at least that hasn't, I haven't had that experience yet. It's always been good when I have. Yeah. But, I mean, I, you know, I kind of don't have any expectations. I'm not, I'm not thinking that I'm going to go hang out for, you know, I don't, I don't know, you know. So it, it's just usually high. I always want to make sure. Sh- I always feel like if the, if I have my one minute with this person, I just want them to know how much they mean to me. And I don't even know if that means anything to them, but it's just I want to make sure that they know how much they're, you know, influencing and touching people's lives with their gifts. Yeah, and both of you in many ways are what I call tastemakers or like in your function of curating music and 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 festivals and writing about it you play an important role in turning other people on to music that you love or music that you know touches you or somehow how is that a conscious effort in what you do to trying to project your enthusiasm out because that's kind of what i'm trying to do here i'm like i love this person i want to you know let people know about and want to turn people on to how much is that a conscious thing in what you do i think you totally do that jokes i've noticed since you became like the lead person on your season the the booking is really starting to look like what i think the inside of your head looks like because <laughs> i started going i met jill through um her series at lincoln center when i worked for the ponderosa stomp and she um, worked with bill bragan and she was his deputy and you could see the transition from when she took over as the lead booker or whatever you're called or the director yeah and it shifted just like i had gotten to know jill a little bit so i got to know more what she liked and it just started to really seem like you 
And it's like stuff that you're passionate about. I don't think you ever book anything that, that bores you or that you wouldn't like, I don't know, give the album to a friend as a present or. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's, it's a fun thing and a, a really cool thing. Our festival is a, you know, we call it, it's, it's a community festival and it's also an international festival all in one and it's all for free. Uh, if, and it's uh, three weeks of music and, I mean, the important thing is to bring in all different kinds of communities of different kinds of people. So if I was booking 15 nights of my record collection, I think the festival would look really different than what it does look like. But it's 15 nights of music. I have to learn about different genres or or meet different people that are experts in different genres. And they're going to have to tell me, oh, this would be really cool. If you you want a cool Nigerian band, that's not my expertise, but I definitely I want to do something that would be really cool. So, you know, I meet somebody that they are an expert in Nigerian music and we can go back and forth and they can say, well, what about this? What I said, oh, you know, and you, you guys know what it's like when you mm-hmm. hear music that does something to you know, in three seconds, if something touches you, it really doesn't take long so you know I have nights like that and then I also have nights where yes I mean it's like I can't believe that this is my job you know like that I get to you know that was the Muscle Shoals night that we did was at Lincoln Center out of doors was that was so much what that was that was like a total dream come true just to get to work on that from you know just from a concept and then from from meeting you, Andreas, to working every day, how how long did it take us to put that together? Ten phone calls a day. <laughs> yeah, it was, but it was worth it. Oh, it was so worth it. But it was that was how how cool. I mean, it was that was really special. Um, and then Allison, the same with you. I mean, you and I worked together when we did um, oh, the girl group. The girl group yeah. day. Uh, we did this really cool day of celebrating all the women who made the girl group sound from the 1960s, sort of like from the New York perspective. Um, I mean, it was everybody from backup singers to singers to songwriters to... It, it was really, really extensive and encyclopedic. Yeah, and the part that I didn't expect to be so emotional, I think, was realizing how they're all good friends still, or so many of them, the New York-based singers, are still good friends. And they've been keeping up these friendships for what it was like 50 years at that time 40 years like on and off they're still hanging out so in a weird way that sort of seems like a common thread through the the shows that really mean a lot to me and that that are my taste and that are my in my deepest wheelhouse it does seem like they're it's a group of people that still do mm-hmm. have a relationship, like the Muscle Shoals people or the girl group people. And so I think that there is something about friendship and we're, and, and a collective, you know, working together to, to make something. And it's, you know, it's not about one person. It's really about the, the whole community of people, which I think is kind of funny because it's a community, you know, that's what I'm trying to do there is build communities out. And so the audience feels like they're part of the community too. So it's cool. No, and I think that's also a thread that ran through a lot of the writing I've done in New Orleans, um, like why I was so drawn to stay there and focus on writing about New Orleans music, which is also, I mean, you could spend years writing about New Orleans music and, and not run out of stuff to write about. But 
it, it's also very community driven, you know, and, and the musical culture and the heritage, like from, you know, street level stuff like Mardi Gras Indians and Second Line Parades up to, you know, people like Alan Toussaint, who had a studio for years that would draw in people like Paul McCartney and LaBelle. It, it's very much part of the city's identity and there's a very strong community of artists and a really powerful thread that goes all the way back to kind of the beginning of America and before really because Louisiana was you know French and then Spanish and full of Caribbean influences you know all the way up until the beginning of the 19th century so yeah I mean I feel like it's kind of the same thing it's a very powerful sense of identity and community and something that goes really deep yeah one thing i'm really interested in is your involvement with the tv show treme that for two seasons i guess ran on on hbo two or three seasons anyway mm-hmm. yeah it was like two and a half i worked on it for one season as yeah. a music consultant and i just what i loved about that show was how much music became almost like a lead actor in it and in that, I guess, time after Katrina, which from, you know, just kind of an outside person, it's, it's I guess, hard to grasp, but it, it had this redemptive, redemptive quality to it, too. So would you mind sharing a little bit how you got that job and kind of what it entailed? I guess I'm not trying to remember how I got that job. And they had a really, really great music supervisor, Blake Lay, who was the music supervisor on The Wire for David Simon. And now he's with uh, with him again on The Deuce. And he, um, I guess, accidentally also had really strong family ties to New Orleans. Like his sister and his mother had lived there for a long time in the 90s. So he had this really good relationship with the producer and this really strong understanding of the city. And so he was able to do a lot of it himself, but I think he noticed that he would put out feelers in the community, you know, the way you were talking about, he'd be like, oh, I need like a bounce rapper or I need like a New Orleans metal band. And he would ask his contacts and people would call me. And I think after a little while he figured out that people were calling me and he did call and he was like, would you like to just be a consultant? for this season, because I knew a lot of the writers. I had a lot of um, co-workers from the newspaper that were writing, or just people I knew from the literary scene. Um, and I think they really let that show follow the music, you know? And there have been critics that said they did it a little bit too much, um, but I, I like it, you know? it's Because they, they really let people do full performances. They treated them like concerts. You know, you had like professionals with a lot of respect for recording live music properly on camera, making sure it all went well, and they would let them do the whole song, which is really rare in TV. And I think it really, it captured a lot about the city, because when you're documenting what was going on in those first years after Katrina, like, everyone's emotions just got dumped on the floor of, of music clubs when they could. I mean, if you would go see a brass band for the first time after having been evacuated like that feeling was so cathartic and insane and they really captured it yeah how yourself you you write you're on 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 the air radio you you curate you know you've done the ponderosa stump for for several years is to you it's like that collection of different things is that 
what you are or are you something you know a writer and everything else is is, is an extension of that or how do you view yourself <laughs> i don't know i mean i definitely started as a writer like i started I got a job as the music critic for the Alt Weekly in New Orleans after I had been going to graduate school for fiction writing. And I dropped out of that program after Katrina hit and decided that I wanted to write for newspapers. Um, so I worked for the Alt Weekly and I was on staff for a long time at the Daily and I thought of myself as a writer first. But now that I'm freelance again and like you said, kind of pulling together all these weird little culture driven projects. Um, I don't know. I really I enjoy putting on events. I really like being on the radio. So I think that maybe I'm just some kind of highly distractible dilettante. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the reason why I was asking you is I'm kind of I have to say I don't know if it's a struggle or if it's actually something real nice. <laughs> but you know, I look at myself as a record producer and everything else is kind of an extension of it. But it kind of goes hand in hand because you want to be able to promote the music you work on. You want to be able to help an artist maybe write a song that needs to be recorded or, or help arrange and all. It's kind of all goes together. And then it becomes that, becomes that thing that is just kind of, you know, kind of unique, but then also a little bit of a threat of wearing too many hats. I always run into that too, where I feel mm -hmm. like, because I need to do that, because I need to run the record label, that maybe the producing itself, sometimes, you know, a little, you know, falls a little short. I don't know. But, um, but then, like, one thing always leads to another. If you're, like, working on a story, maybe you meet someone that you really feel like you need to introduce to somebody else for a project, or you learn about someone that would be perfect for a different kind of context. Like... I feel like that's how it happens to me is like everything kind of connects and you wind up doing all these different things. I was just going to say that I think most of the people that I'm friends with that, that are somehow involved in music, that's that's our core similarity is that we're connectors. You know, you, that it just that's how it happens. I, that's sort of and that's kind of it's one of the most fun parts of all the things that we do is connecting everything and just seeing I don't know you just it's like being a mad scientist or like or you know just going oh I know this is going to work I know these two puzzle pieces are going to fit together and this is going to make something great yeah there's uh, so much pleasure <laughs> in like I don't know finding out about something and knowing that you have like the right place for it yes yeah and that like if you connect these two people or these two ideas that like something cool is going to happen yeah <laughs> one thing I'm interested and I kind of was able to uh, to kind of live through that process with you for the show we did together. <laughs> Would you mind walking us a little bit through the whole kind of timeline, what it takes for you, I guess, from the idea to the night of the show? Maybe you can use the Muscle Shoals show or any show you would like to. Yeah, I, I could use the Muscle Shoals show as, a, as an example. And I, the one thing I will say is that every show is sort of different because there's some shows that you just call an agent, hey, is this is this artist available this night? Yes, they're available. Send us an offer. And you send them an offer. They say, yes, okay, we accept your offer. 
And then, you know, you do a little bit of work. Okay, you know, this is where they're going to fly in. This is where they're going to stay at the hotel. These are the their technical needs. Okay, great. And then, you know, we don't really have a lot of contact until the night of the show. Then there's other things like Muscle Shoals that we, I, I'm not even exaggerating, Andreas, how how many times a day did we talk for some of those? Did we talked seriously 10 times a day, yeah. a couple of times. Uh, you know, I'm trying to remember when, when did we start this? When did... It was record store day, whenever that was. But I, I like... know you had that on your mind, even leading Well, I remember... I mean, I must have, I saw the documentary. You know. I was on my phone. I remember this. David Hood got in touch with me and said, hey, you got to talk to this this lady. And I was in the parking lot of Grimey's record store, Derek, the basement. And it was record store day. I believe it was record store day in the, in the spring. It might, I might be wrong about that, but, but no, I was like April. outside and we talked there on the phone. And it was like hot oh. already. And I'm like, we were talking and I'm like, you know, this could be something really cool. I remember, because it just dawned on me, my friend Zach Ernst. Yeah. That That's sort of how this whole thing, I definitely saw the documentary and I loved the documentary. And then Zach, uh, he's a good, besides being, uh, he, he books uh, Antones and he books the Paramount down in Austin. Um but besides doing that, he's also a great guitar player. And he went on the road with the Waterboys and on that tour, David Hood was on that tour playing bass. So I said, Zach, do you, do you think that David Hood would want to bring the Muscle Shoals guys up and do a show at Lincoln Center? He's like, that sounds so cool. That would be a great idea. So I went to see the Water Boys. Going, okay, I have this is like my one chance to, to make this happen. I went to see the Water Boys and Zach had me back and he introduced me to David. And I had met David once before because he had played Steve Cropper Steve did Cropper a show. show. So David played in that band so you know but I just said hi you know do you think that this would be good he said oh you know call this guy Andreas and I I was thinking oh he's blowing me off like he's just kind of blowing me off and Andreas is just gonna blow me off and that's oh oh well but I'm gonna call him we'll see what happens and then that's so not what happened I don't know why I was thinking that but um and then just talking to you you were so positive and I mean, we just started that ball rolling as soon as we started it, if, whether it was like, I guess it was March or April. But it took, I feel like really from March or April, it we had to kind of, you build it from an idea in your head, then just kind of go, okay, who's the band going to be? Can everybody in the band, that was the first, you know, it, it's like every, there's a million hurdles to get over. So you just, you still don't know. The idea is so good. One person says, yes, okay, I'm starting to fall in love with this idea. And it, that's always a really scary thing because I fall so in love with these ideas. And it is devastatingly heartbreaking if they don't come through. And do I protect myself emotionally or just, <laughs> I can't. I'm just not that person. I go in so wholeheartedly. And when I'm in love with something, I'm in love with something and I can't help it. So, you know, you just go through every little hurdle. So the first hurdle, okay, David said to call Andreas. I called Andreas. I said, do you think that the band couldn't, you know, could we get the band together? 15 minutes later, he said, yep, yeah, the band is all... I said, what? Are you kidding me? You 
in 15 minutes you like got the whole you know text. i know it's like i don't know how this guy did this but it seriously was probably one day that you got the core band together so we knew that we had the core band i said okay well that's really cool but now you know so we just kind of built it and you know correct me if i if i'm not remembering something right but we just sort of built it from that core out so we had the core band we said okay we need singers we need you know so then just slowly it took a lot of back and forth getting the singers. Um, you know, we, we said, okay, well, we want to have some special guests. And, you know, we thought, we kind of just went through. And it, it's so fun, that process going through everything is so fun. You know, doing, that's that fun rabbit hole to go down is doing the research. You know, well, think of all the incredible records that were made in Muscle Shoals. Well, my gosh, who could we have? We could have, there's an you know, there's like a huge list of people, you know, could we have Bob Seger? And remember, we kept trying for Bob Seger. I was like, well, every day that's not a no, I'm going to keep assuming that it's a yes. And, you know, that ended up not coming through. But that was a fun couple of weeks thinking that that could have been a yes. Um, And then thinking, oh, my gosh, what about Betty LeVette? That would be amazing. And then just listening to the records that she cut in Muscle Shoals going, oh my gosh, this would be incredible if she's saying this stuff. This would be so great. And she was on board and she was so great. And, um, you know, it was interesting trying to get Dan and, you know, Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham making sure that they could both do it. Um, You know, we got them on board and it just started to grow from there. Patterson Hood. Uh, It just, it kind of grew and blossomed. And then, I don't know. So then we got everybody on board and then, I'm trying to remember then coming up with the set list, you know, I mean, and that's a real joy. That's something I don't get to do for most of the shows that uh, we're bringing in. Most of the artists there, here's my set list. This is what I'm singing. Okay. That's great and fine. But we actually got, you know, we said, Oh, I would love it if they would do this song. And, you know, you put it, you sequenced it perfectly and, you know, just going yeah. through everything and then uh, i learned the hard way what hard cu- curfew means too. oh yeah oh yeah <laughs> oh, did you get that cut off did you get the sound cut well so close you didn't get but we had to like last minute get a couple songs i guess off this list and just kind of trying to orchestrate that to let the band know uh we were kind of i guess running behind overall we had timed it out pretty well but things kind of when you know dan and all that kind of you know the breaks and all that i guess i did not quite well it's really hard to know you know how long a set is you know even if you you can time it out but and most people you know they're doing the same show every night this one was so when we do these kind of handcrafted shows they can be much shorter than you think that they're going to be which is some for whatever crazy reason that's usually what happens they're just shorter than you think they're going to be but every once in a while they're longer they're like, oh no we're, what are we going to cut this is terrible but yeah you learn to the hard way what a hard, we do we have a really strict 10 o'clock curfew and they will pull the plug they don't want to but we we just can't we can't have amplified sound after 10 um so it's you know heartbreaking but we got it done yeah we got it done <laughs> we got it done to the minute, I yeah, mean, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was crazy. Andres was running around, and just oh my gosh, it was so stressful that night. Yeah. You know, just cutting it. You know, doing making decisions like that on the fly. Wow. With, you know, the show is going on. It's like you have one minute to to 
figure out yeah. what you're cutting. And I remember like writing something on a piece of paper so I could show like the band from the set. We got to, you know, we won't do this song. We're going to go to the next. And it, I, I think they all went to the right song too. Yeah. So. <laughs> there was no train wreck. Yeah, that was yeah, great. It that was is really true. fun. And then what was really, I remember just like after the show too, you have to, you know, you have that build up and it's kind of, and then you just kind of, you get into that happy zone when it's done. Yes. You're kind of relieved that it's done and you were <laughs> able to pull it off and just kind of, you know, have that memory. You kind of, I guess me just kind of running around, you know, during the show, <laughs> I doubt I really was able to enjoy the show itself, but the whole experience is just kind of, you know, beautiful. And you, yeah. if finally you have a sense of relief, which is you don't realize how much you need a sense of relief until after that show. Ah, but it is the biggest relief. And then just such a sense of accomplishment, something that takes you months and months and months and so much emotion and so much passion and so much just you put your whole self into, you know, and we're just two people of putting our whole selves. Think of all the musicians that were involved yeah. and they all put them. And their I think they all, you know, had a really great experience and your team was great. And, uh, yeah, so that that was, uh, I mean, that's one of my, you know, fondest memories, period. And being able to take the band there, take them out of the studio and be able to do that in front of that many people, I think that's, mm. they'll all take that, mm. you know, with them uh, for a long time. Absolutely. And, well, that uh, means, I mean, honestly, that truly does mean everything. That means everything because uh, there's... You know, some musicians, they come in, it's their gig and it's their job and they're coming in, they're entertaining the audience and it's a great show. Everyone goes home, everyone's happy. And then there's shows that you can tell it's special to the musicians. And I think the audience knows when it's really special to the musicians and you know you're in a room or you're just in a space that you're going, this, I'm in a special space tonight. This is you know, we're, we're all in this together and this feels so, I'm, I, I mean, I'm going to remember that show. I'm going to take that with me too. That was really a special show to me. That was great. Yeah. And now you're at the end of the summer cycle. <laughs> yes. You get to relax a little bit more Yes. before you have to jump into the next, next year. Yes. And, uh, but one thing I wanted to maybe talk to both of you, but especially Allison, is since you, you, you did some of the same work for the Pond Rosa Stump. And I mean, between the two of you and between those two events, there are some of the most eclectic, you know, unique programming. I mean, with all the special shows you do, with all the the artists you take, you know, you bring back from Neverland, you know, some of those artists who I'm sure you you had a hand in getting down there. I don't know. They might have been retired or kind of out of a public eye for a long time. What, what went into finding some of those people and trying to bring him back? Well, I wasn't, I technically wasn't part of that part of the Ponderosa stomp. I had a little bit of an easier job because I booked the conference. So we would have all the artists booked to perform and then I would work with Dr. Ike and my husband Lefty and the other bookers to choose which ones would get interviewed during the day. But I did watch the whole booking process roll out and it was 
usually pretty epic because it was a big group of people, like a lot of record collectors and New Orleans bar owners and fans that were on a group email, and they would just spit out fantasies. Like, I remember one year, <laughs> Michael Hurt, who's a writer, you know, from Mojo, um, he was like, I want to find Red Simpson. Like, I want to do uh, Hello, I'm a Truck. And then you just kind of go to the phone books and Google. Um, I remember this year, actually, and, and I haven't worked for the Stomp in two years, um, but this has been something that's been cooking for a long time. They have Mary Jane Hooper. Um, I think that was another, and she's not performing, she's doing uh, just an interview. And that was totally uh, go to the phone book, go to Google, see if you can find like a vestigial tale of her real name, who's someone on Twitter, who you can maybe connect to like someone you know that might have the phone number. Um, It's a lot of like playing detective and it was really thrilling to watch. I mean, because you would just have all these old music heads Hmm. go through their collections and be like, God, I've always wanted to see the legendary Stardust Cowboy. Is he even still alive? Like, (laughs) is he coherent? What does he do? And we have we have much more technology now, you know, to track people down. I mean, I've used Facebook a lot to find disappeared artists for interviews too, like just in, you know, working for the newspaper and stuff. Um, I did a big project about rappers from the 90s and I found everyone through MySpace <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's just a lot of, with the stomp at least, it was a bunch of people just shouting out their wish lists and then like you know doing the knocking on doors and you know googling to just see if you could find someone and people are easier to find usually than you would think Mm -hmm. even if no one's heard from them from them for years people are usually listed somewhere even if you just go to the white pages everybody but bobby gentry yeah Yeah. (laughs) she's she's the the one exception, I guess. I know. I know. That's Alice and I talk about her all the time. That's like, that would be our dream person. I would just, even if she didn't perform, I would love to have someone interview her. I just yeah. want to hear her. And oh, I just love her music so much. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, quite a few of those artists actually got a second win out of that particular performance, which is something I think is even almost more important than you know just kind of the, that effect on these people's careers that they were able to maybe hit the road again or make another record mm-hmm. because that's kind of one thing we're all I'm kind of you know one of my goals is like I'm around all these great you know songwriters artists musicians and they have so much you know they're at their peak probably as far as their creativity but not necessarily the outlet mm-hmm. and to create those outlets to be able to do another record or to hit the road or do a show just kind of i mean there might be artists that, that decide not to do that but the ones that are willing to do that and still have the, the jobs and, and the, mm. the creative energy and the health that they get get a chance to do that because uh I just feel like that's so important because it's. I'm interested in Dan Penn's next album mm-hmm. as yeah. much as I am in him, you know, singing I'm Your Puppet from 66. Right. It's just like, I always, how does the, you know, story continue? What's the next chapter? Yeah. And I, I'm in a fairly 
privileged position where these people actually are playing me the songs or playing me the demo and I'm like I don't want to be the only one hearing that I want to be able to to share that because it's just so valid and and great yeah and you know a little bit of what we did with that muscle shell show and I think I'm sure like the girl group show and and and, and the Ponderosa Stomp show is kind of you know add to the catalog or add to the legacy of these artists. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a really hard business to age in. It's funny. And like you said, I feel like, you know, you get more and more creatively fertile. I mean, you get, you know, you're evolving intellectually the whole time, but people don't necessarily keep investing in you as you age as an artist. I mean, I think it's only a very few lucky people that are consistently have that interest. Yeah. I think that's something that all three of us have in common are some, I think that we all have stayed very plugged in and invested in people who whose music we liked. I think that we like people from a generation or two beyond us. And I just think it's, those are such rich relationships and rich stories to get, you know, if we're, if anybody's lucky enough to, to meet people from those generations i mean the stories are incredible it's yeah you know the history that you get and you know just hearing stories of the heyday of the music business it's oh I, I, that's i don't know it's such a joy yeah i agree and what you said it seems like unless an artist achieved a certain level in his prime or in his mm-hmm. commercial prime it's hard to kind of coast off of that or or keep the career going i think if you're the rolling stones you know it's a no-brainer but if you are you know mick taylor or somebody that's just kind of you're not quite there it's 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 just considerably harder mm-hmm. and there's not really a commercial market for it but i believe there are niches that are relevant for these you know artists to 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 live in and to to thrive in hopefully well, I guess it's the difference between being an artist and being a rock star. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a rock star, that's like a fantasy. And that that's a one in a zillion thing. And I don't know from not not like I see and I'm that involved in anything like that. But that doesn't in I don't know that that reality, I think that feels lonely. Whereas being an artist, it feels very communal. And it, it it's, you know, it's a harder living to make maybe, but. It just seems more fulfilling if you can kind of wrap your head around not wanting that one in a million thing and just say, this is my talent and this is what my talent is going to, this is the life my talent is going to give me. It's a nice life. Mm -hmm. Sure. And uh, you're here in town for Americana Fest and you've been here before uh, for Americana Fest in past years. And although the podcast will be released after it, <laughs> so we, it, there's no point for us to say, hey, you got to go see this show. But what are you hoping to get from Americana Fest or in the past? What, what's your reason of being here? Well, I remember the first time that I came and I was, did you come with me the first year too, I think? Maybe. I think you were here the first year I came. 
I mean, I was totally blown away by the awards ceremony. Mm -hmm. I just, I had no idea what I was in store for. And, you know, the house band was Buddy Miller and the McCreary sisters and Larry Campbell and just all these incredible session guys. And, you know, it was just like person after, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Emmylou Harris. Oh my gosh, it's Rodney Crowell. It's Jason Isbell. It's, you know, it's just like nine million people. And it was just person after person. Yeah, that's always the high point. It's I mean, a, and being in the Ryman, that's so special. And, and that first year, just going, what what? There's the one venue that has three different, you know. There's one club on yeah, top of the Cannery Ballroom, yeah. and the other, yeah. And just going to see all these, you know, was a lot of bands that I had heard of, but then just like the magic of I've never heard of this band. They're gr seeing St. Paul and the Broken Bones for the first time. I had never heard of them. Who who is this? They're so good. People are going crazy, and it was just really a fun experience so much so that I reached out to the people Jed Hilly and Michelle Aquilato from the Americana Music Association and I invited them to come to Lincoln Center and this we just did our fourth season with them this past year and we had Bonnie Raitt and we had they brought up uh, this band that I, I love now this young band called Low Cut Connie they're so good uh, that was a blast to have them um, we had Don Bryant opened for Bonnie Raitt and that was he was fantastic just fantastic he's gonna be here too yeah yeah um, but so it's cool and I know that the, I'm sure I'll hear bands that I've never heard of. I mean, I try to come with no expectations and then just kind of keep my ear to the ground and somebody's going to tell me, you have to go see this. And so I'm going to discover something here because I always do. Yeah. So even if, if they might not necessarily be on the forefront, you're here kind of on a business trip too. I mean, yeah. since you're kind of scouting new talent or interesting interesting band that you might be able to, to book yeah. at Lincoln Center. Yes, that's cool. Yeah. Another thing that we kind of, certainly we have, you did a Last Waltz show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I did a Last Waltz show in Muscle Shows. Oh, cool. And you guys had one in, in New Orleans, too, kind of the yeah. one that they took on the road uh, with Don Was yeah, and, yeah. and Warren Haynes. Oh, cool. So maybe, did you get to see that by any chance? No, that was during Jazz Fest. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think that that was. I had gone to the Austin Psych Fest that year. I went jazz fest. I saw that one. I wish you I had seen it. <laughs> yeah. It was good. And that was around the same time you did yours too. That was before we did ours. Yeah. But I, I wanted to go see what theirs was. I'm like, what's theirs gonna look like? Because I, I was just putting ours together at that time. So I was like, all right, well, we gotta see what what's going on here. Yeah. Was yeah. Was Larry Campbell? kind of involved with yours yes larry campbell was the band leader for ours and he's just oh my gosh he's so good he's just so great and his wife teresa uh, yeah teresa yeah. williams yeah they're they're fantastic so they were just they were just so good um i mean and then like we got that was a very lucky one that we just had a ton of incredible special guests um we had lucinda williams we had patty griffin we had teddy thompson then oh my gosh we had dr john we had um howard johnson who played um the original sousaphone um in the last waltz and uh, who else do we have oh at the last minute bob weir came and did a song i mean that was crazy um it was just really cool it was very fun and i just remember lucinda doing ain't no difference oh my gosh it was so beautiful and heartbreaking and it was great buddy miller was great it, it was an excellent night and how about yours what was yours like it was great too uh 
my goal was to um, kind of shine a light on the Muscle Shoals connection of the band, especially Levon recorded a lot in Muscle. He did one and a half solo albums. He came down to do a lot of, you know, session work, stuff wow. like that. Mm -hmm. And different Muscle Shoals guys work with different members of the band. So mm -hmm. I was like, well, I would like to do a last waltz where we're not only the, we're not, I mean, it's the greatest hits of the band, but we wanted to do some of those Muscle Shoals cuts that Levon did and get those. So we had David Hood, you know, play on the songs he played with Levon. And uh, I had a Bones Malone trombone player oh, yeah, yeah. come down, bring the original horn charts he, because he was in the horn section with, right. with Howard Johnson at Last Waltz. Wow. So we had him lead the Muscle Shoals horns. And Paula Sola, who was one of Levon's bass players, he did. He played on that last Grammy-winning album, Life mm. at the Ryman, or Ramble at the Ryman. So he he came and played bass, and and then a lot of the guys who wrote some of the songs. So Tommy Talton had two of his songs cut by by Levon, so he came in and sang those two songs. And Colin Linton came down because he lives here and he worked with Rick and and when the band reunited he had song cut by them so we wow. got all these little you know connections so yeah. Jamie Hall came in the couple they did a record together called All Night All Stars oh wow I bet that's uh, great in the 90s so that's kind of our concept when we recorded it and we filmed it and hopefully it's going to be a record at one point that's, oh that'd be really cool and what was fun is you know my job was very similar to my job at Muscle Shoals show we did together, but I ended up being the musical director too. Wow. And that was that was the trip of a lifetime as far as that because actually being there kind of you know, it's one of those I'm unworthy moments because all these <laughs> people are so good and I'm just kind of Wow. In my mind barely hanging in there, kind of leading <laughs> the band, but somebody has to. Right. So um it was a great experience and so cool. uh, I'm 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 very happy you know it's I was I thought you know everybody's doing their last waltz tribute and I want to make sure it's unique enough for it to make sense mm -hmm. and uh, obviously we had not an option to you know get Dr. Chani or get you know Garth to come in <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. but with our like limited resources I felt we, we kind of did what we could to mm -hmm. make it special and the people down there are still talking about it and oh, that's so cool so it was mission accomplished Excellent. and I, I checked some of the others out too just because I wanted to make sure that as far as quality and playing goes right ours is is up there yeah and I, I can honestly say it was and big you know the band we had was the way I cast it was that was like to me that was the hardest work find a drummer yeah they can play that oh my god and that's yeah. one thing i think you know if if that doesn't work you can't pull it off mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. either you really have to reimagine that music or the grooves just have to be those grooves mm -hmm. and i think even you know even the one that they took on the road they were struggling with that i think mm because it's just it's hard i mean yeah. levon and richard when he played the drums they had such mm. distinctive feels yeah yeah that 
either you really have to and I had Liam Williams who you know who was the drummer oh, yeah, in the, yeah. and I knew he could pull it off mm-hmm. and I know I mean he put a lot of time getting it right and a lot of those shows you don't have the luxury we we did we you know we had like two rehearsals with the band right because you you know everybody's somewhere and then you have to all you know get them in for a couple (laughs) days but um yeah it's always a, a challenge but you know the challenge is you know if you kind of rise you know it's the best to the, then, then it's, it's great it so anyway we've been talking for almost an hour oh, and i know yeah. we got some great shows <laughs> to see tonight but there's one question that i would like to kind of cap this with and it might be a horror question i've been asking different people about that same question and it is what does your record collection tell about you My, my wife would say that you are a hoarder, for sure, <laughs> because just the, the sheer volume in my case is, and I can always, for me, it's easy to legitimize it because it's like, I'm, I know I learned more about record production, production by listening to records, by reading, you know, like finding out who played on it who arranged it, who wrote it. So to me, that's like, well, it was my education, you know, it needs to be there. And it's, it is fairly eclectic, although eclectic in a sense of, I think the common thread is playing in this kind of a certain life quality. I've never been that much into building tracks or electronic sounds. It's always, in my case, always the root of a band playing here on the floor so i think that's kind of if if you would analyze it's like you can certainly you know see that that's where my musical heart is from or at um but uh i i guess i would say that my collection probably looks um the the meat of my collection looks like the it looks like American music, you know? It looks like the root of American music. That doesn't mean... I totally have tons of Rolling Stones. I have the Who. I have, You know, I've got... And then I have a whole bunch of stuff from the times that I ever worked at a record store that I just have, you know, strange... You know, like when I would just buy everything because I got discounts. <laughs> um, but, it, you know, I feel like what I mainly... I think mainly it's, it's American music, you know, whether if it's... Um, you know, if it's Dolly Parton, if it's the band, if it's Muddy Waters, if it's, um, you know, Johnny Otis, I, you know, it's, it's kind of all over, but I think that that's the thread through my stuff. Yeah. What about yeah, you? I mean, mine, I guess, if we're only talking about my part, cause my husband's part of the record collection <laughs> is like three quarters of it. Um, and if you count the store too, oh God, yeah. <laughs> but no, mine really makes me, I think, look like a hippie. I mean, most <laughs> of the stuff that I really care about keeping on vinyl is when you really flip through it. It's a lot of like '60s and '70s songwriter-driven stuff. Yeah. I mean, so maybe it says that I like value story. I don't know, but oh, I like that. <laughs> I also have a lot of like weird exotica, cool, and like tropical jazz from the '60s. So. <laughs> I don't know how those two things come together. Maybe I should just stick with the first answer. <laughs> yeah, but I, you know, it's it certainly it sounds eclectic. And uh, just at the very end, one thing I want to mention or two things. 
everybody needs to go to New York between mid July to the end of August, somewhere <laughs> around there. Yeah. And catch at least one of you guys to show up there. I mean, mm -hmm. Lincoln Center out of doors, it's it's not just the quality of the music and the programming, but it's also this beautiful setting surrounded by all the high buildings and this great park. Hmm. Uh, so that's one thing. And then also I would like for you to to plug your favorite record store real quick oh, yeah, so I people think. can check mm -hmm. it out. <clears throat> Everyone should come down to New Orleans and visit Euclid Records on, on Piety Street in the bywater of New Orleans. It's pink. <laughs> yeah, you won't miss it. And it's it's a cool area, too. It's very much been... It's kind of the East Nashville in a way. Yeah, it of, totally of, is. Of it totally New is. Orleans. I like the, the art school that you have there, too. Or, yeah. You know. NOCA, New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. They have a great park, and flea markets, lots of, lots of booze, <laughs> and coffee shops. Yeah. It's a good neighborhood. Well, thank you so much, the two of you, for, for uh, spending this hour with me. This is fun. And, yeah, uh, thanks for inviting us. And please enjoy your... Uh, your week in Nashville. We're gonna. <laughs> Thanks. Awesome. This was the 13th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's Creative Workshop Studio in Nashville during Americana Fest. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week. <laughs>